Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am your host of the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. My name is Dr. Andy Rourke, and I have a good one for you today. This one's going to get people fired up. I hope that this is going to be of great interest to you. Um, It'll definitely give you a lot to think about. My guest today is Mark Cushing. He is the founding partner of the Animal Policy Group. Mark is an attorney. He's a former litigator. He uh, focuses on advocacy and providing high-level strategic advice and services to clients with needs at any level of government and key trade slash industry associations in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Let me uh, pause here and say this. Mark Cushing is an attorney that is hired to persuade people about issues in our industry. And uh, I just want to make that real clear. That is the sort of disclaimer up front. I find Mark to be fascinating. I don't always agree with what he says. There are things in this podcast that I do not agree with, but he makes me think uh, and he challenges me. And so I just want to put forward and say Mark's opinions are his own. And I want you guys to know going in that he uh, he does have an agenda because he is uh, paid to persuade people. And so just know that going in. And uh, and I find his I find conversations to be fascinating and very insightful and very valuable. And so I am happy to to bring you this interview with him where we talk about his crystal ball and what he sees happening in our industry in 2021 and beyond. Also, we talked to him about his book, Pet Nation, which I do like quite a bit, and I'm happy to, to recommend. It is about the underlying factors and trends in society that have pushed pets to become the family members that they are today. He is just If you like the data and the real stories, I mean, he breaks down uh, employer perks uh, using pets, you know, and, and just how that has become a part of, of motivating employees, and he talks about just the changing demographics of pet ownership and things. It really is, if you want to understand our industry, and you want to feel good about our future because, gosh, vet medicine is growing and the demand for what we do is growing and it's not going away. It really is worth your time. It's called Pet Nation. Um, that You can get it on Kindle. You can get it in hardback. Uh, as we talk about on this podcast, he's got a softback that's coming out very soon. Um, well, in the next year or so, I would say. But um, we, we get into that a bit on this, in this episode. All right. I've, I've chatted on enough. Guys, this is a really good one. Really interesting. I hope it gives you a lot to think about. And uh, I'll see you on the other side. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome, Mark Cushing, to the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. Thanks for being here. Andy, you know, it, it took you a while to invite me, and, and I, <laughs> I said yes uh, uh, the second you did it. So look look forward to it. You've got a great uh, perspective and a great audience. So happy to happy to spend some time. Well, thank you a lot. Thanks for being here. Um, do you want to say, uh, in your own words, uh, what is it exactly that you do? I don't know that I could do justice <laughs> wow, uh, for all the things that you do. I, I don't think there's any police around here that are going to create new problems. No, I, uh, <laughs> I, I'm a lawyer, so right off the bat, you know, half your audience, you know, will, will turn off, turn things off. Now, I'm a lawyer by training and grew up outside Portland, Oregon, in a, in a town that's now become the hub of the multi-billion dollar Pinot Noir industry in Oregon, which I try to uh, help that industry along uh, remotely. Uh, Lawyer, and I I was fortunate to uh, go to Stanford, came back, practiced law, and was a business trial lawyer. So I spent about 12 years trying lawsuits. And I also uh, ran political campaigns for various people, which led me to 
ultimately end up in Washington, D.C., and that's when I got a phone call in 2005 from the founder of Banfield, Scott Campbell, mm -hmm. to help an industry coalition on the microchipping issue, which people probably forgot that there was ever an issue about that. But in any event, um, I had success in Congress in what I was asked to do, <clears throat> and I figured that was it. You know, I enjoyed it and go back to my regular life, and suddenly, uh, 16 years later, full-time. So I created the Animal Policy Group around 2009 and 10, and the simplest way to look at what we do, we do three things. Um, and I have a team of, of nine besides myself. We're all virtual, or mainly around the western states. I live in, I live in uh, Paradise Valley, Arizona. So Andy, we, number one, handle all 50 states, all regulatory, political, vet med board, pharmacy board, and legislative and governor issues related to veterinary medicine for a large group of clients. And as you might expect, it's a, it's a heavy dose of the bigger players like Zoetis, Mars, Royal Canin, um, yep. and, and others, number one. Uh, number two, uh, in 2009, I was asked by Ross to help them and be their consultant to get accredited by the ABMA, the Ross Vet School, which, as you know, produces more American veterinarians than any other school, even though it's located offshore. Uh, that was successful, and success often leads to more opportunities. So I've built a significant accreditation practice. Um, new schools like Lincoln Memorial, University of Arizona, existing schools like A&M, Colorado State, and a variety of programs. That's led now because certain people became presidents of other schools. I, I am working in the dental, the optometry, and the medical field too, but mainly do the veterinary side, and that's kept me busier than you might think. Um, then the third area is uh, what I would call industry issues, which you deal with all the time. And the industry's big enough now, uh, there's enough money in the industry that I get hired to help push issues like veterinary nurse, like telemedicine, and, and a host of industry issues where the discussion and the advocacy is internal. It's not at a legislature necessarily or at a state vet board, vet med board. And that's been uh, year to year uh, the biggest growth engine in my practice. Uh, I was fortunate to have Eleanor Green, the recently retired dean of Texas A&M, join our group. I have a team of four full-time that all they do is monitor legislation and board actions in all 50 states. Um, and that's, that's a tremendous service. And it's become, you know, they look at, believe it or not, this will scare the audience, uh, uh, I'm sure. Last year, they started out looking at 15,000 pieces of legislation that had an impact on animals, pets, and or veterinarians. Now, we winnow that down, but, but just to give you an idea of how important pets are, which we'll talk later about my book, Pet Nation, you know, that number, 15,000, was probably 6,000 not that many years ago. So tremendous interest in and with interest and success in the field follows people that want to reform. They want to make it better. They want to stop it. They want to restrict it. They want to do a lot mm -hmm. of things. So um, you've heard me talk on those issues before at, at the Banfield Summit. So I've got a great team, and, and, you know, I split my time among those three buckets, if you will, of activities, but that's probably... Um, the best uh, overview I can give you of what we do. Yeah, that no, that that's perfect. That's fantastic. Uh, quick point: 
uh, Dr. Eleanor Green was at University of Florida when I was there, and she she is amazing. <laughs> like I, I saw that she came to work for you, I was like, wow, that's a win. That's a win for Mark. <laughs> I, I got to make it clear. She she's used that phrase, "work for you," and I said, "You don't work for me, Eleanor. You you grace me with your presence." She and yeah, totally. <laughs> she and her husband and Jim uh, Hearn, who ran the equine program at at A and M, not the vet school side, but just the whole equine industry and behavior and all that. And they were this, as you know, power couple in the, in, the, in the horse industry in the country. They bought and have this fantastic ranch now in Millsap, Texas, kind of north central Texas, about an hour west of Fort Worth. And uh, she's on her horse a lot. She's having some fun and she's earned. So yeah. I told her, I said, I don't want you ever to wake up in the morning and think you have to do something for me. Just, you know, the fact you're involved. So we have a good time together and I've got a great team. One of the things I did that we'll talk about, I'm sure, is... Uh, I, along with a really good friend, Audrey Weistrick, we decided to create the Veterinary Virtual Care Association last uh, March, you know, in the, in the start of COVID, and kicked it off in April. And that's now, um, I'm on the board and chair of the advisory council, um, Eleanor and Audrey co-chair it. But my uh, longtime colleague, Allie McIntyre, who a number of people know, um, I've uh, donated her, if you will. Uh, I couldn't hold her back. So she's the executive director and doing a great job. So that's something else that I'm often associated with and, and have done quite a few podcasts trying to explain telemedicine to the oh, veterinary cool. community, which is a confusing topic. And we should talk about it. That's one of the predictions. Let me just lay down here uh, sort of what this episode is and, and kind of why we're here. So I... um Every year, for, for those who don't know, uh, Banfield has the, what they call their Banfield Summit. And it is this... Um, it is this gathering of sort of big players in veterinary medicine. So, um, you know, uh, the industry leaders, uh, things like that, all the deans of the vet schools or a lot of the deans of the vet schools come together and they do this thing every year. And somehow I got on the list a couple of years ago and they haven't they haven't figured out <laughs> who I am and ejected me yet. Uh, so 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 I go and. In, in all honesty, the part, honestly, I, I, I enjoy in the program more than anything, I, I think. It's always a great program. I love the bit that you do. when So so you go up there every year and uh, they hand over the stage and you do your predictions for the coming year in vet medicine and what that looks like. And now that you've sort of laid down your, your three pieces and the, and the um, you know, the industry issues and also the regulatory issues, you, you have phenomenal insight in what's coming in our profession and what's really going on behind the scene and what's getting discussed in Washington that's going to affect uh, me and 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 uh, our listeners in their real lives, in their real practice. And, and, and so I've seen you do this probably three, four times now. And I always just, I just end up with six pages of notes. And so I, I was, I, it came to me a long time ago and I, I thought you'd probably, be, uh, I thought you'd probably be too busy. I was like, he'll never say yes. But, but I, I asked you, would you come on and look into your crystal ball for 2021? And I'm thrilled that you said yes. And so, yeah, I just, I, I'd like to walk through, I, I think you've got a, a number of issues you kind of, you kind of uh, pulled out. And let's let's talk about the future and just and just kind of look in, look into these uh, into these issues uh, from a from an issue standpoint and from a regulatory standpoint and just from um, a shifting landscape transpoint. So so yeah, where where should we start? Well, I tell you what, let's just start with uh, pets in the United States, and and yep. and we're not quite at the point of taking it for granted. But everybody that's in the industry in any fashion, whatever you might do that involves pets, and probably your audience. Uh, is mainly involved in pet healthcare, which is where I spend most of my time and have for 15 years. And I just spoke to uh, 
a veterinary uh, uh, entering class at a vet school at the University of Arizona. And I told them, uh, and I'll, I'll say it without reservation, you could not pick a better time and a, to be entering a better profession than the veterinary profession. The, yep. All the dynamics of the growth we've seen, pet population has grown significantly faster than human population. Uh, vet practices can't keep up. We don't have enough veterinarians. And mm -hmm. that only means good things for people entering that profession. There's challenges that we'll talk about, you know, burnout sure. and so forth. But the, but the bottom line is pets aren't a fad. Uh, people aren't going to take their pets back to shelters when and if they go back to work in an office. And the underlying dynamic of the human-animal bond, which is really the thesis of my book, that once Americans had a chance to have pets inside, not in the backyard, and really engage their dog and cat every day, not just on the weekend or at night. Uh, the magic that we know, which you know as, as, a, as a doctor, is a science. The oxytocin goes up and cortisol goes down, and pets just make people and, and make communities better. So that surge is going to continue, and I think you're going to see on the political front more, and I'll be involved in some of this, what are some of the issues? Access to pets. Can you take your pet into an apartment? Can a senior have a pet in a nursing home? Can a senior have a pet in an assisted living facility? And the country hasn't kept up with, with the culture and society mm -hmm. views of pets, <clears throat> and there needs to be a lot of work done. And, and I, a point I like to make, Andy, um, is that, and I'm a baby boomer, okay? I'm not close to going into a facility. My wife and friends might say, you're a lot closer than you think, Mark. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm a young boomer, we'll just say that. But here's, here's yeah. my point, that um, a lot of people predicted in studies uh, six, seven years ago, well, we're going to hit a point where baby boomers can't have pets. And they were the biggest pet-owning group, and they really changed the dynamic with pets in this country. And their children and grandchildren, you know, millennials and Gen Zs are... Are, are racing ahead with it. And I look at that and say, you know, there's no better time in your life to have a pet companion than your last 15 or 20 years when you're mobile and healthy and, and hopefully have some money and can enjoy it. Completely. You're going to see a lot more attention to one thing to get to predictions. You're not going to see boomers not have pets because they don't want them. They don't think they can keep up with them. So you're going to see the veterinary service and veterinary practice providers increasingly look at that big demographic and say, well, wait a second, why don't we bring it to you? Why don't we take the service to you? You know, and you already see that with food delivery and drugs delivery and, and mobile vet care and telemedicine. But I think you're going to see a more of a wholesale rethinking of the vet practice in the context of what has been the demographic that fed veterinary practices for the last 25 years, which is boomers. So that's, I think you're going to see that. You're also going to see uh, initiative that, that I also will be involved in where I want to make the simple case to Congress. Now, how do you make a simple case to Congress, right? Uh, most people think you better write a check first, and then they'll, they'll have a conversation with you. But here's the case, and I've been making it for about 10 years. To utter laughter 10 years ago, now it's being taken seriously. What's that? We subsidize and incentivize to billions and billions of dollars level wellness activities in America, stopping smoking, <laughs> obesity, good nutrition, daily exercise, stopping drunk driving. And nobody complains about that. They shouldn't. Those are valuable programs. They keep the country safer, healthier, people live longer and better lives. I argue, and I'm not alone, that ownership of a pet and the veterinary care for a pet 
should be placed on the same level of wellness activity to incentivize as everything I just mentioned. It yeah. is the cheapest medicine to keep people healthy and to create communities healthy. And it was scoffed at 10 years ago. People would say, ah, oh, come on, you're talking about pets. But this congressman that would do that would often hold up their iPhone and say, hey, by the way, let, let me show you my new little laboratory. Yeah. Isn't she cute? And, and, but that's changing now. And I think you're going to see efforts, pilots, but then a real push. And I think industry has a great opportunity here. And it'll seem self-serving, yes, if you incentivize acquiring a pet and vet care that's good for business, yes, and nobody should apologize for it. Nobody should apologize for trying to keep care of animals and keep them healthy and to make it possible for people that can't afford a pet to have one. So I think you're going to see that. You're also going to see, and this is going to be a mixed blessing for veterinarians, legislatures took last year off and dealt with COVID. 15,000 bills were introduced, but they didn't go anywhere. Because in you know the second week of March, America just said, time out. You know, and we're either not going to meet or we're going to stop because we've got a crisis and we have, we have no clue what we're going to do. I think an issue that has bubbled up the last five years, each year getting more legislative attention, is going to be back. And that's overseeing, regulating prescription of drugs by medication, by, excuse me, by veterinarians. Because mm -hmm. veterinarians handle opioids, as you know. And, yeah. and that sounds to some people like, oh, my God, what do you mean? Well, opioids are powerful drugs that are pain meds and variety of, right. uh, of uh, very valuable drugs, and people do try to abuse that privilege. Right. Some We've got a prescription drug problem in this country that's, yeah. that's significant, and it's, it's, right. uh, it's going to get addressed. And so you've heard me say this at Banfield. You know, for five years, veterinarians have kind of hid and hoped that the teacher didn't look at them, you know, when the class was getting in trouble and pointed to human health and said, opioids are their issue. Well, the governments now pretty much feel if your job involves touching an opioid you're in the game, you're in the discussion, and, and you're going to have to report. You may have to consult a registry to see if the person in front of you with the dog might have a history, and they might not be there for the dog's use of that you know, opioid, mm -hmm. but their own. So uh, veterinarians have not come up with a solution yet uh, on the software side to make it easy for practices to do what they can do with a snap of a finger in human practices. Because human healthcare is plugged into uh, insurance software, to Medicare, Medicaid software, so it's easy for them to report. Now that's just having somebody push a different entry, push send, and it's it's in the State Department of Health hands. Veterinarians mm -hmm. don't have anything like that. You know, it's a cash business primarily, and as you know, it's not easy to say, okay, when I prescribe something for you, prescribe something, Andy, for my two cats or dogs, then one of your assistants has to stop go to a mm -hmm. record, you know, okay, that's, no one likes to do that and, and they shouldn't want to do it. Um, but I think you're going to see more of that. So that's kind of my pet side. The last piece there is the most controversial part of my book. But believe me, uh, I'm being proven right every day, namely that we have a shortage of dogs, notwithstanding the ads people see late at night on cable channels. Are there some shelters still teeming with dogs? Yes, but most Southern shelters, those dogs are going up north and those kennels are empty by noon on Sunday, if not noon on Saturday. And you're seeing now uh, millennials that want, let's say, Labradoodles. They mm -hmm. have done their homework and decide, that's a great dog for my kids. I like everything about it. It doesn't shed. Let's, let's get one. You're now at a two-year waiting list. For some of those breeds, it's at a four-year waiting list. That's going to be a tension point that will be problematic for our industry and profession. 
And the problem when you mention shortage of dogs, people go, wait a second, are you, do you want puppy mills to come back or to grow? And the answer is, do I want inhumane, sloppy, unhealthy breeding to take place? No, but do I favor commercial breeding of dogs? Yes, if it's done right uh, and if it's transparent so you understand the practice. But last year, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, finally came out with numbers and they put them at around 1.1 million dogs came in from outside the U.S. and only 2% had any health records or vaccination or veterinary records. They are not coming in the front door. They're just getting into Mm -hmm. the country. Now, am I happy those dogs hopefully found a nice home in America? Sure. Does that seem like a long-term solution for a a population that wants dogs and enjoys them? Right. Because the neighborhoods they're coming from overseas are not animal welfare leaders in the world. Let me just assure you of that. So it's yeah. so that I'm gonna. I think you're gonna begin to see some activity there. Um, so that's my crystal ball on pets. Okay, cool. Uh, let's let's pause there. Uh, so unpack for me a little bit more about the uh, shortage of dogs. This is it's funny. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, there was so much concern in our industry about overproduction of veterinarians. And then in about like a three month period, everybody just went, oh, wait a second. (laughs) And then there was, we, you know, we, we're, we don't have enough veterinarians. Yes. And I feel like that's kind of happened with, when we talk about, we talk about pets in America, we were like, oh, we, we, we've got a a shelter problem. And then all of a sudden you hear this other, this other narrative of, oh, we, we have a a shortage of pets. Unpack for me a little bit. What you said, how that's going to affect vet medicine. How does that what does that look like in the future for, for rank-and-file veterinarians or vet techs? What are they seeing, and how is this affecting them? Yeah, that's interesting. You know, just a quick sidelight, because I think you're in the audience. I remember debating at the Denver AVMA in 2014. The topic was overpopulation of vets, and I, I debated uh, Jim Wilson, Paul Pion, mm-hmm. and Dennis McKernan. Uh, and, and I had a pretty good day of it. I, I, it, it was one of my – I kind of brought my trial lawyer uh, – soared to, to, the, to the podium, so to speak. And no, I look smart in hindsight, but, but I knew then that we had a shortage, not an overpopulation. We just didn't think of it that way. Well, in 2015, uh, I helped get funded Mississippi State and one national survey firm to do a study on the dog population, because I was really curious. I had heard from senior executives of two major animal rights groups who off the record told me, we've got a shortage coming. And I said, boy, your commercials wouldn't suggest that. And they didn't want to go much further in the conversation with me. But, but, mm. but I, I had a sense of something. And so when you look at the numbers that shelters, in 2015, we studied one full year, 7,400 shelters. It was clear that they met about 25% of the need. And if you look at the breeders' numbers and, and survey data, suddenly it looked like we might be as much as 2 million short. And I guess that... That delta is probably being met by overseas or foreign sources. Um, but you began to see prices rise, which tells you that something's in short supply. And, and now you saw the COVID photos of empty shelters in Orlando. I think it was a shelter with you know, mm. six, 60 kennel doors open and everybody's shelter or everybody's kennel empty. Here's the impact. You run the risk of dogs particularly becoming luxury items. And you don't want to see that. And, that, right. that's, and that's, that would be, I think for veterinarians, they would just feel like their mission, and nobody becomes a veterinarian who doesn't have a mission of some sort. They're gonna feel like, uh, as a doctor would, if, if people under 40,000 a year incomes could not get healthcare, 
doctors themselves, it wouldn't be the money that they'd be looking at. Right. They'd just be looking at what are we doing here? And so um, right now, but this is five years old data, American households with annual incomes of $30,000 or less, which puts you in the, the poverty camp as a household, mm -hmm. owned dogs, Andy, at the same level and percentage as $100,000 a year salary households and above. So we haven't had this class distinction. Sure, a, a wealthy family can afford an expensive fleece dog bed, which, by the way, the dog doesn't use. It just sleeps on the, the owner's <laughs> bed anyway. But uh, right. So there are disparities there. But, but, but the point is, we haven't had a class distinction in ownership. That would be the biggest, biggest issue. And then you begin to get negative press about pets. Right now, pets are a feel-good story. And when you start having articles about shortages and only the rich can afford them, and the uh, low-income housing projects turning people away who have a dog. Hey, you can't be in there with a dog, even though the law says otherwise. Um, it's an industry that has a halo over it, and it, and it, deserve it, it deserves a halo. Pets are great. Veterinarians do great work. Um, when the clouds show up and the sky darkens a bit, then, then it gets, it's a rougher time, and, and I think veterinarians and, and their staffs would feel it. So um, I'm getting more interest in the topic all the time. It's gone yeah. from you're kidding to tell me a bit more about that. And, and, and so we've got work to do, uh, which some other show probably we could talk about how you saw yeah. it. Yeah. I, I, I have to sit with this for a while because now that you're saying this, you know, it, it just, again, this is just me reacting to the conversation here is to say, it does feel like I'm seeing a lot of $2,000 dogs in the vet <laughs> clinics. You know, what I mean, you know what I mean? Like, and again, I, I don't have any numbers to back that up. And I, I, that's why I have to sit and think with this a little bit. But, but now that you're saying this, I'm going, you know, it used to be that we never saw people who paid much for dogs. And now it really does feel like oh, a yeah. significant number of those puppies coming in have been purchased. Cause the owner will tell us, Oh, you know, I paid this or I paid that. And, um, yeah, I, I just I have to sit with that. Andy, yeah. I'll give you I'll give you a price that's seven days old. I'm not going to mention the state, and I'm not going to mention the breed. That uh, mm. wouldn't be appropriate. But it's it's a state in the middle of the pack in terms of size of states and so forth. A very successful breeder. Uh, it's it's one of the mixed breeds that doesn't shed. Very popular. Um, yeah. Two year waiting list now. And the price for a beautiful puppy, uh, kudos can be, you, just, you, you see mm -hmm. the puppy and you're like, I, I see why you wanted that puppy, $4,500, $4,500. And, and I'm hearing that number and I'm hearing 5000 a lot more. And yeah. it's, uh, that's good for the breeders, of course, and, and, and those people want vet care. So, and they deserve vet care and, and they're going to spend mm -hmm. money on it. And as you know, Probably the best prediction you can make that's the easiest to be right on is that millennials are going to continue to spend whatever money it takes to take care of their pets. And yeah. that scarcity mentality that, that I grew up with, which was you, you went for vaccines, if your dog got hit by a car, and then you went to the vet to have your dog put down. That was kind of the mindset. Well, forget that. Millennials want human scale, human quality health care for their pets, and they'll pay for it. That's great news. Um, but it does it begins to make pricing an issue uh, and I don't begrudge any veterinary practice that that prices to the market you know mm -hmm. any any more than lawyers price to the market and and people that make cereal and, and any any you know and NFL football teams I mean you know that's the you know uh, free market economy but 
it's going to be a challenge, and, and that's, that's going to play out uh, in an interesting way, I think. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and I agree with your point on the morality of, um, of pricing ourselves out of the place that, that people who are in the lower middle class or lower class can afford. You know, like I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to practice that medicine. You know what I mean? And, and I don't want that to be the case. And I, I'm sure I'm not alone. Well, what's cool right now, Andy, and, and I tell you things that I know you've seen, but, but let, me, let me make my point. Probably the most dramatic impact of COVID and is continuing this year isn't what people think uh, or, or write about the most. Uh, burnout, tired vet staffs, people emptying mm-hmm. shelters. Th- those things happen. But let me tell you what, what 2020 really transformed. And, they, and the lower scale, lower cost veterinary services, including telemedicine, surged last year. And, you, and all over the country, you're seeing major private equity firms and major practices look at how do we serve low-income markets and make some level of care accessible, affordable, and attractive to them um, Mm -hmm. and easy for them. And that's a wide range of people and it's a wide range of communities. It's rural, suburban, urban. And I'm stunned at how much activity and what the pace of that activity is. And I know it in part because private equity firms call me often and say, hey, you know, we're, we, we want to get into the pet business. Where should we look? And I know what they're looking at and seeing. And, and that's been really exciting. So you remember when people looked as far down their noses as they could at weekend clinics inside of pet mm-hmm. stores. Oh, my God. Well, you know what? Those are young veterinarians paying off their student loans, making $1,000 a weekend, giving people a level of care that otherwise they weren't going to get. And you can right. say, you can say, well, I wish they went to this traditional hospital, but for whatever reason, it's not either convenient or they don't think they can afford it, but they're getting some level of health care and they're engaged with a veterinarian and a vet tech, you know, and that's positive. And they're getting referred out if they got a problem that they should take care of that, that, that weekend clinic can't. You're seeing the same thing with some of the telemedicine providers. They're just, they're just making advice about pet care uh, accessible. And isn't that a good yeah. thing? I mean, isn't that a good thing? So I feel like that that dovetails nicely into what we're talking about here. That's exactly where I was going to go is to say, you know, how does telemedicine fit into this? Because we're talking about access to care. Where I'm, I'm curious. I was talking to somebody today. I feel like I have an idea. I know where my crystal ball says. I'm curious what your crystal ball says about telemedicine uh, in the in the near to mid term. Here's what I think. Um, and let's frame it. 17 states during COVID have said, you can start a relationship with a veterinarian by telemedicine, Skype, Zoom, whatever device you want. Definition being you're not in the same facility as a vet. Mm -hmm. And a year ago when it started, everybody thought the minute COVID's over, whenever that is, we'll go back to the old world. Well, guess what? Practices are trying it. Practices are making money on it. Many, many suppliers have come in to try to take the load off veterinary staff to have to figure it out, process it. And what have millennials and Gen Z said? It, you know, it took you long enough. Of course we want to use cell phones, right. smartphones. Of course we want it to be convenient. We want you to tell us how to take care of our pets. And it's as simple as this. You know, my wife chairs anatomy at Mayo Clinic's med school here in Scottsdale, Arizona. That's why we live out here. And you know, I go to Mayo for my annual physical and all that. 
I don't call Mayo every morning and say, hey, what am I supposed to do for my health today? I spend 364 days a year taking care of my own health from whatever source of information I have. And then one day a year I go for my annual physical. Pet owners aren't any different. They want to know, particularly millennials, Andy, you teach me and I'll pay you to teach me what I'm supposed to do for my dog or my cat. Help me figure it out because I don't, I didn't go to vet school. I didn't study animal behavior and so forth. And we unleashed that this year. Practices learned that people will still come into the clinic. If you say to them, you know, I think this is what's going on, but I really am not going to be able to, to, to treat it unless I see your dog. They don't say, well, the hell with you, Andy. This was just a bait right. and switch to get me in your clinic. It's like they've trusted you and you've been accommodating them on their terms, cell phone, iPhone, smartphone. And uh, of course, they're going to follow your advice. So I think what you're going to see now, but it's going to be a battle. You know your profession. I always say our profession as if I invented Cushing's disease. But, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a vet. But you know your profession. There are going to be fights. And there's going to be particularly old guard that say, I hate technology. I didn't go to vet school to have to spend my time on a computer. And the answer is you don't have to, number one. You don't have to use telemedicine if you don't want to. But you can get suppliers and teams that help you do it. And you can actually spend your time doing what you want to do. And I think once that, you know, that analogy, you know, the barn door is open, the cows are out, they're out. I don't see the old guard or establishment shoving American pet owners and veterinarians back in the box they were in 12 months ago. They're going to try yeah. and they're going to lose. Um, and, and vet med boards don't have the staff to run around the state going, hey, is that Andy Rourke? Is he doing some telemedicine inside there? Right. You know, I'm going to call him. Well, I mean, go ahead and call. If you're breaking the yeah. law, you know, do something about it. But if you're just helping people understand pets and behavior, um, and I, I say it's real simple. We should view the VCPR as a door that pulls people into the healthcare world. Oh, you've got a new dog? Great. Let me talk to you on the phone, give you some basics, and then let, come, come see us when, as soon as you can. It shouldn't be a wall you have to climb up to earn the privilege of a veterinary consult. I, I just think that whole concept is so backwards. And, and yeah. so I think the biggest change with telemedicine is the infrastructure is now, and every day it grows, available. And it's lowering the cost, right? Because a lot of the telephone, telemedicine platforms, Andy, look the same. So how do they gain an advantage? They either say it's a better service or it's less costly. And, and mm -hmm. you know that, that's, you know, Intel's made a, made a fortune as a company for 50 years, lowering the price every month almost, but certainly every quarter of their basic product. So as it becomes accessible, easy, and less expensive, the pet owner's just sitting here going, excellent, it's about time. Um, and I think that's gonna be transformative. But it's gonna be a fight still. There are states that, Nevada, North Carolina, a few states that you know, people have their fists up like, get this telemedicine out of here, we, we don't like it. I, I agree. I, I agree with that. I think I think that's that's a, a solid read. I think I think we know that pet owners want it. I, I think the other thing that's happened with with the pandemic is a lot of us were kind of pushed into it, or, or we really were yeah. like, "Hey, we need to be doing this." And, but the other side to it, you know, is that you see, it's not a panacea. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not no. it's not wonderful, amazing, above all else for the pet owners. I mean, sure, they'd like to save themselves a drive into the clinic. But if you say to them, I, I you know, I have to see your pet. Most of them, they get it. You know what I mean? They 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 um they don't they would rather have they'd rather contact you and have you say, I need to see your pet. Then tend to feel like they came in and they didn't need to come in. Isn't that isn't that the case? And here's the two two points that, that if you 
your audience hasn't thought about them, I want to highlight. Because to me, this is the crux of it. And I'm, I'm, I'm paid to advocate. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a persuader by, by training. But here, here are the two. Ontario's had telemedicine for, since 2018. The head of the Ontario board, overseeing all veterinary practices, just like in the States, and Ontario's got 15 million people, it's where Toronto is, uh, they have not had a single complaint in two and a half years, not one of any pet being injured or killed due to the use of telemedicine. So, of the 17 states that opened it up in the U.S. during COVID, there's not one reported uh, complaint to a state vet med board in those states of injury or harm to pets. So my point is, forget everybody's suspicions and theories and worries and fears. There's real data now to look at. And at worst, telemedicine is harmless. <laughs> at worst. You know, at best, it's a nice tool that fits along everything else veterinarians do and it's convenient and, it, and, it's, and it's a resource. But, but it is not causing injury to pets. And if it's not, then let's lower the whole temperature about if we continue to use it. I mean, and to me, that's the essence of, I hope how veterinarians will look at it. If you like it and, and, you, and you understand it, try it. If you don't, you don't have to. You know, you, yeah. nobody's, there's never gonna be a law that says you must use telemedicine. Yeah, uh, I think whenever you have a new, a new practice that opens up, I think that, um, that there's always, people, people catastrophize sometimes you go you know oh yeah this is you know this is going to be terrible we're going to be missing cases mm. we're going to be missing diagnoses uh it, the pet owners are never going to come in our building because they want this thing N none of that none of that is no that's true i i just i think it's it's i think it's become more clear than ever that it's a tool like so many other tools in your toolbox and uh it will work for some practices and it doesn't work for others and it depends on your staffing and your state and you know I just um I don't know. I just feel there's a lot more clarity and a lot less um, picture painting that, than there used to be before people were actually using it. People forget sometimes. Uh, every year there's multiple surveys done on Americans' trust or likability or, or, or uh, respect for health professionals, and they rank them. And every year nurses are the number one rated health professional. And every year the number two is veterinarians. That's a big deal. So if you think about it, a veterinarian in an iPhone conversation giving me advice is something people welcome. And when that advice goes to, I need to see your pet, they just follow right along, they, they understand that. And the other person on the phone might be a vet tech. Well, they're essentially a veterinary nurse. So the top two rated professions are the ones handling telemedicine. And, and, and it's not like, and I, you know, I'm being a lawyer today, I apologize, uh, but you're a good veterinarian. If you were a good veterinarian on Monday and Tuesday, Andy, and you started using telemedicine on Wednesday, you didn't turn into a bad veterinarian on Wednesday. You know, if you're a bad veterinarian abusing telemedicine, I guarantee you, you were abusing other veterinary tools the day before. You know, it's not like you go from good to bad or, you know, sinner to sane or vice versa. So. Yeah. We'll get there, but it, it, we'll have some noise, as you know. There'll be some more uh, podcasts that you have to do dealing with telemedicine, I'm sure, <laughs> or you should do. Let's talk about nurses. Uh, yeah. You you brought that up a little bit. You've been really yeah. involved in the Veterinary Nursing Initiative for a, a couple of years. What do you see as far as support staff in the coming years? Uh, how, how do their lives change? What, what's going on that's going to affect them? There's one thing going on that is going to have dramatic effect. Um, 
sadly, it's not changing the title from vet techs to nurses because the American Nursing Association has declared war on the veterinary industry in trying to use their name. And they have money and people that can go to legislatures, and I've been involved. And, and it's, it's sad and it's, it's silly, but, but I, they don't want to hear it. That, that's their view. But I'll tell you what's going to happen, and it's very exciting. Um, okay. you're gonna see, I believe it's going to happen this fall. You're going to see the first veterinary college um, launch a mid-level extender master's program that would be like a veterinary nurse practitioner or like a veterinary physician assistant. So you'd be a fifth year program, a combination of much more medicine and medical training than a vet tech gets in their two year program, but also nursing style care and nursing care delivery techniques and management. And right now we have basically, if you start with high school, we have two types of professionals in the industry, two year degree holders that get an associate science degree in vet tech they take a national board exam and they're basically vet techs or certified registered licensed uh, around the country do a great job then we jump all the way to the dvm which is eight years out of high school right the human healthcare, as you know goes two year four year five year six year eight year twelve year and we have a, and we still have shortages in human health care but we have a wide range of professionals and it makes no sense to have the gap between the two-year degree holder and the, the veterinarian. And one of the complaints that have been documented, and no one can really argue it's not true, except there are exceptions always, are that veterinarians don't utilize their two-year degree holder vet techs to the extent of their training and certification. And everybody says, that's what we got to work on. Well, yeah, we should work on that. But you may not change habits that are 20 to 30 years in the making. I don't know. But why not have that mid-level who has a salary that's a sustainable salary? Because vet techs aren't paid enough. It's not easy to sustain a career long-term at, at the average vet tech salary. And that may make some of your veterinary you know, listeners upset, but that, I think that's just true. So I think there's, you're going to see one and then a group of vet colleges begin to offer a program supervised by veterinarians, preserving that key relationship that creates a great career path for a very talented vet tech who will have to get some additional science and biology training to, to take key courses alongside first-year vet students, but additionally, nursing-related and care-related courses, get a master's degree, and I think you're gonna see practices, and we've, we've tested it, practices are, are eager to see. And this could be a, a, a two-person practice in a rural part of South Carolina that can't find a new vet and hire someone like this for 50 or 60,000 a year and get tremendous value. And the veterinarian still has to supervise, but, but you can get a lot of work out of that person. Or it could be a, one of the bigger corporate practices that puts this person in charge managing a lot of things that veterinarians really don't want to spend their day managing and they weren't trained to do. So I think that change Again, it'll come with some controversy, as change always prompts, but uh, uh, I expect you to see the launch of a pilot later this year, and then everyone's going to be watching it, and we'll see what, what the market says. Would this be a, a new sort of credentialing program? Would this be something different than a vet tech? It would obviously not be a veterinarian. It, it wouldn't be. Uh, it wouldn't be it, it, the person might be a vet tech who gets this master's degree. There, we're not proposing it as a new title yet, because that puts you into a legislature 
and all the battles about what's the name going to be. The idea is, you gotcha. should, I think the first program is going to be called a Master's in Veterinary uh, Clinical Care. Gotcha. And, and, and you'd show that Master's and people would know the training. Um, and it would include pharmacology, it would include uh, exposure to minor surgery, it would include gross anatomy and physiology. So the veterinarian would have a, a colleague that has been trained to really understand a lot of what they're doing in exam rooms, treatment rooms, surgery rooms, um, but yet their day-to-day -day function isn't to do that as much as to manage it, educate, train, facilitate. and. Uh, We've we pre-tested with a, a number of practices, and uh, small and large, and there's a lot of interest. And, and you know, with a pilot, uh, you know, you, you, you'll, they'll learn things, and people will have criticisms and things they want to change. And I think that's going to be, I think that'll begin to become popular. Then I think schools will say, let's do it. And the idea is this would be limited to accredited veterinary colleges, Andy, giving this degree out. So right. so it's underneath the veterinarians, and you're not going to have that battle of oh my God, this is going to become a a new practice across the street from my vet practice. Um, I don't see that happening. But it has happened to some degree in human health. You see nurse practitioners with their own practices. But to some extent, that was meeting a shortage that just Congress and, and the HHS said, sorry, but we're going to let that happen. We just yeah. need, we need professionals. And they're not, doctors aren't going to rural towns in the South at the speed we need. So we'll have to get them some level of care. Uh, Gotcha. So that's my thought about uh, that tech, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Other forces that you see affecting uh, the vets in the trenches in the next year. I think you're going to see um, you're going to see service providers step up, uh, non-veterinary service providers, boarding, training, daycare, a lot of things, and they're they're either going to be partners as vet practices or they're going to look like they're poaching a little bit. That's going to be interesting to watch. The one industry in the pet sector that was hammered during COVID at a time when seemingly everybody else surprisingly had an amazing year, right? And we've heard that, you know, vet practices, pharmaceutical, nutrition, sales were up in the 15 to 25% range. But daycare and boarding facilities had a rough 2020. And, yeah. uh, and I, I think uh, once COVID slows down, they'll come surging back. And, and yeah. that's going to be interesting. And they're going to, uh, I think they're going to be ready to maybe change some practices. And, and, and uh, veterinarians have opportunities there not to see them as threats, but as partners. And I, I think you're going to see more of that, where vets take a mobile service delivery model into a daycare, maybe once a week or once every two weeks, and say, well, as long as you're here at Andy Rourke's, you know, doggy daycare and, and training facility, do you want to get some basics? you want to get a wellness exam? And, and, if I had a vet practice, I'd, I'd, I'd look at that as, a, as, as one good model, not to only do that, but that would be one thing I think you may see. I also think yeah. we, have, we, we saw that we had a 19%, so let's say 20% growth in the number of American students wanting to get into vet school this year. And we need larger class sizes. We need to produce more veterinarians. And the accrediting body kind of turns its head away from that issue. And they, they're, they're not really responding to the shortage out there. And I tell people that say, we need more vets. Well, if you, if you need more vets, you gotta make more vets, okay? You, know, you just can't yeah. wave a wand and say, you're a vet over here. So um, I think you're gonna see increased pressure in the on schools, and that's gonna be good for the profession because they, they need entry level. Starting salaries are going up, 
Last year, there were schools that had ninety dollars to $95,000 a year average starting salaries for their grads. Boy, I don't think that was yours when you started practice. No, um, not quite. Not quite, right. And, um, and so I think you're going to see that change. Um, I also think you're going to see one more thing, and, and I know we want to talk a bit about uh, my book, uh, if there's still time. Um, yeah. As self-serving as that is, you mean this book, Pet Nation? Yeah, yeah Pet yeah, Nation. Book. Yeah, um, I've got a copy over here. You're beginning to see shelters um, talk much more seriously and, and talk as a group about their model evolving into kind of community resources for pet care and animal care, across, including veterinary. And I think that's a great discussion and great opportunity. I think veterinarians could sit like this with their arms folded and stay out of that, or, they, or if, they, if they were smart, get in those conversations and mm -hmm. see how you could be a resource. Um, and I think that's just consistent with the fact that the community is gonna have more and more pets and they're gonna want more and more experts and, and services yeah. provided. So um, those are some of my, my musings about 2021. All right. I have I have one more question for you before we uh, before we get into into the book. Um, I, I'm I'm going to put you on the spot, but I know that you that you have an answer for this. Uh, today, as we're recording this, is inauguration day. What changes will veterinarians see under the Biden administration in the first year? Do you think? Well, the federal government has very little to do with veterinarians and pets. That's been reserved for the states. Um, okay. not unlike vaccination rollouts have been reserved for the states. I don't see that changing. I don't see Biden himself uh, believing that that, taking that issue on and wanting to federalize veterinary care. But as you remember, uh, the fairness to pet owners legislation was aimed at doing just that and putting veterinarians under the Federal Trade Commission, which to me would be a disaster. It would make it would keep me busy all day long, so I probably shouldn't complain, but, it, but I was part of the group that led the defeat of that bad idea. Um, Charles Chuck Schumer, the new Senate Majority Leader, was a sponsor of that bill. <clears throat> that bill hasn't had a hearing in, in 11 years when it was, since it was introduced. Will Schumer waste some of his political capital on that idea? It's possible. And you may see um, there, there's a wing of the animal rights movement that does not trust the states and would like to see the federal government play a much heavier role. Um, and they tend to be, they're not Republican, they're Democrats, and they're, and they're, they're on the left of Democrats. And um, they've got members in the Senate and House that uh, they're close to. And I think there may be some efforts there, and, and anybody who thinks otherwise. It, uh, Trump honestly didn't care about pets. I don't, I don't say that positively. I just don't think he cared about pets. So his administration didn't do anything per se, um, the state houses around the country tilted slightly Republican in the 2020 election. Interestingly, we, it doesn't get written about quite as much. The only Senate or houses that changed control from one party to another in the country of all 50 states and all, uh, all of the state houses, Senate and, and House, the only ones that flipped went Republican for Democrat. So the state and the governors and that level hasn't changed from what it was, you know, four months ago. And I don't, I think you'll see activity, but I, I, there wasn't, as you know, in a 50-50 election as this ended up being, there wasn't any sense that the country wants to go 100% one way or the other, and certainly when it comes to pets. Um, but you will see more legislative activity, more bills, 
uh, in, in, I would say, heavily Democrat states that want to regulate, want to oversee, want to restrict. I think declawing will come back as, as New York State banned it. I think you'll see some states mm -hmm. who took it up last year stop because of COVID. I think we'll see some of that. I think we'll see okay. some of that. But Biden, Biden himself, I don't think he'll see that that's where his, his uh, best opportunities are. What is, in your opinion, the best news for veterinarians going forward? So coming out of this, I always like to leave people in a yeah. good space and, and yeah. highlight what, what we're looking forward to. So there's a lot of things. We, we always get on and talk, talk a lot about dangers and things we're, we're looking out for. What, of all of these things. All the things, the best news is this. Americans from young to old, but particularly millennials and Gen Zs who own 62% of all pets in this country. And we're now at the 200 million pet cats and dogs level. Pets aren't a fad. The pet population's gonna grow and the, and the pet owning population wants more. They have one dog, they want two, and they want veterinary care. So the demographics, which if you wanna look at a country, Japan, Spain, the United States, what's been the biggest differentiator in the last 10 years on economic growth and success? Population growth. If populations decline, guess what? There aren't as many workers, there aren't as many consumers. Japan's in a tailspin because they cannot stop. Well, the U.S. probably will get back on an uptick because of immigration. You know, Trump really shut the, shut the you know the doors, so to speak, and Biden's going to be very different there. That'll lead to more Americans, which will lead to more pets and demand for more pets. So the simple fact of the popularity of pets and the scale of interest by millennials and Gen Zs would make me as a veterinarian really comfortable because you think their kids, whatever that generation is going to be called, aren't going to want pets too? No, it's, you can't, you can't, that door is open and not going to be shut. Let's break here and then we'll come back and I want to, uh, I want to spend some time talking to you about Pet Nation and, uh, and so let's, let's, uh, let's take a pause. Thanks, Andy. Let me just throw something out that you might want to put on your calendar. I am doing a workshop with Uncharted Veterinary Conference on March the 28th. That is a virtual uh, event. It is Sunday afternoon, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific, and I will be doing personal branding. Now, I have not done this workshop before. This is not something I generally talk about, but I am happy to share my experiences over 10 years of growing a personal brand as a writer, as a video creator, um, as a speaker, as an educator, as a lecturer. And, uh, and I am happy to share with you uh, the whys and the why nots and the hows and the how nots and uh, show you some scars that I have gotten from mistakes I've made along the way to try to, uh, to try to help you avoid them if you're interested in growing a personal brand. That will be through Uncharted. Uh, I will get you guys links as the date approaches, but you might want to go ahead and just pencil that in and save the date. That is March 28th. All right, let's get into this. Let's talk a bit about the book Pet Nation. So I've been going through it. Uh, it uh, connects to what we've been talking about very nicely. You hit a lot of these points. We're, well, just just going to lay down the, the book and the premise, and, and let's just begin at the beginning. An agent reached out to me, interestingly, and, and said that major publishers, and, and the ultimate publisher was Penguin Random House, which is the biggest publisher in the country, I think actually in the world. Um, and they were interested in, in this. How did we go from where we were 25 or so years ago with pets, you know, kind of proverbially in the backyard, to where we are now in America? You know, what happened? Can somebody tell that story from the inside who was involved 
uh, with a viewpoint. They, they didn't ask me to be a reporter. And I said, I'm not a reporter, and I was involved, and I'll disclose how I was involved. And they wanted it to be a fun read, and uh, they let me take, put a lot of facts and a lot of data into the book. I've had a lot of friends, Andy, that have read it and said, you know, I thought I knew everything about pets, and it turns out <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I did. So I, I wanted it to be informative, but, but a fun read, and it really tells the story, but, and I take it in a different direction. It's not just that our relationship with pets changed. That's true, and that's interesting. You know, I'm not sure I'm the person to write that book, but, but that's interesting. What I saw was a, a total social and cultural transformation of the country as a result of that relationship change. You know, pets, when they were in the backyard, they were kind of accessories. Wherever you grew up, I grew up in a small town, you know, there were pets around, but they were around. And then if one, someday your cat just left and you didn't see it again. And, and some people were like they are now, you know, live their lives for their pets, but not nearly the number. And then it changed, but what happened was they came inside and cats came inside, dogs came inside, and people just began to experience what engagement with pets really can do for you. And that kicked off this whole human-animal bond. As you know, that's a subject of tremendous amount of academic research, and uh, Purdue has a 29,000-entry library dedicated to human-animal bond with the Habri Group. Um, but then what changed, uh, figuratively, dog owners took their dogs and went right out their front door everywhere in America. And that's how the social side and the cultural side changed. Suddenly. I don't care if you owned a pet or not, get in your car right now and drive five minutes and I bet you'll see a dog. And go to a store, go to an airport, wherever you might go, you're gonna see a dog, go to a hotel. And you began to see dogs become regular parts of the landscape. And so laws had to change, people's habits had to change. And more and more people saw it and thought, well, that's kind of fun. And then, then we discovered one thing about pets that, that's sort of true about sports teams. And you're in South Carolina, um, and the uh, Gamecocks, okay, is a good example, or Clemson. When two people show up with a Clemson T-shirt or, uh, or a Clemson cap on with that, that, that paw that I've mm -hmm. seen just, just plenty of times and that bright <laughs> orange, you know. But uh, they don't talk about how much money they each make, where do you live, what kind of car do you drive, all that. They talk about the linebackers last week. They talk about the ref right. that blew the pass interference call. It's a leveler. Well, that's what pets are. Two people in Manhattan meet, and it could be a billionaire and it could be somebody homeless. If they meet walking their dogs, what's her name? What kind of yeah. breed is she? What's she like to eat? What was she, do you have anything she loves to play with? They talk for 20 minutes. It's a leveler. It's, it's a commonality a, a, among people. And I think the, the United States could use it right now. So it's sort of the story about how that evolved, what were the problems with it, what were the challenges, including shortage of dogs, and how it affected healthcare. care. Uh, you haven't got to that chapter, I think. But, and, and then I end the book with where we go next. And we talked a lot about that today in, in, in our discussion. And when you talk about the yep. future, uh, I'm, I'm really convinced that we, we need to, this will make people gasp. You know, we need to double the number of pets in this country. And, and most yeah. people will be like, Good, where would we put them? Well, don't worry, the United States is plenty big enough to have them. Um, I also have some fun in, in chapter nine. I spend the first two pages having a, having a fun little fight with Pope Francis I. And my mom, who passed away at 94, had a picture of him on her coffee table in her assisted living facility. And she heard my thoughts on this. And she was always like, Mark, would you just stop picking on the Pope? But, he gave, <laughs> he, he gave an interview and two sermons 
that, that are absurd, all, all due respect, Pope, on pets. That people played with pets too much. They liked pets too much. They spent too much time and money on their pets. And he had this zero-sum theory, Andy, that if, if you engage in your dog, it saps your ability to be kind to your neighbor. I would argue, and I'd win, <laughs> that <laughs> pets make people better. They take people that, that are kind of grumpy by nature and they soften them up. They mm -hmm. allow people to see living things in a different context. And it's crazy to think that you can't be out with your, your little girl and watch your, your dog playing with her and not turn and enjoy the girl too. You know, and that, that yeah. you're, and so uh, I have some fun with that, but uh, it's the story of what happened and I analyze it and, and, and hopefully have a lot of information that people didn't have about what the impact has been because it's been big and transformative. Well, compassion, compassion is a muscle, you know, like as you, as you work it out, it gets easier to use and you get better at it and you get stronger. Um, and so I, I, I love your, I love your analogy of softening people up. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I liked, uh, earlier in the book, you walked through the opening up of the workplace right. and how workplace culture is affecting pets. And you talked about fraternity leave and things yeah. like that. And, and, uh, what different companies are using and how they're using pets as, um, you know, as employee benefits and things like that. I, I thought that was, I thought that was fascinating. And I thought, I thought it made more so even than the numbers of pet ownership. I thought it really made a good point about how society is changing to yeah. embrace pets and integrate them in, in, into our life. And you talk about hotel policies and things like that. Can you speak to that a little bit as yeah. far as beyond the numbers, the cultural impacts that we're seeing on pet ownership? Andy, uh, I'm thrilled hearing your comments because I viewed it the same way. I don't think any two changes were more dramatic than workplace and hotels. I'll start with the workplace. Um, when I grew up, maybe somebody on Main Street let their dog sit outside, their, mm -hmm. their retriever that they've had for 100 years. But, but, but the idea that you, you'd go into any workplace and see dogs and services for dogs and a culture of dogs, unthinkable. And the survey that Carrie O'Hara did at Nationwide Pet, 1,500 people in the survey, 1,000 owned pets, 500 didn't. They work for companies of 100 employers or more, almost to the same percentage. They all liked the company better, would stay longer, liked their boss better, enjoyed their coworkers more if it was a pet-friendly company. And that study has created shockwaves throughout the country. Employee benefits people now can go to a company and say, you know what, you want to give a benefit to your millennials? Give them $300 for adoption. Give them a $200 veterinary services. Um, give them paternity or fraternity leave and people, you know, they'll come to work for you. Every company in the country of any size is trying to hire millennials and, and having a hard time doing it. There aren't enough. And they have found that nothing is candy to a millennial like a pet benefit. So that's been fascinating, number one. Um, and, and on the hotel side, it's, it's more remarkable. And I use the example of Kempton Hotels, and they have about 70 hotels around the country, very hip, interesting. I think they were in Charleston, South Carolina. I forgot mm. the name of their hotel there. But, uh, you know, 25 years ago, you walk into a hotel lobby with a dog and somebody's on you in two seconds. Hey, outside. You and the pet, outside. You didn't, <laughs> even have to, you didn't have to post no dogs allowed on the door. You just knew you couldn't do that. Kempton Hotels now, not in everyone, but most, they have a whole floor, Andy, devoted to non-pet owners 
And just think about that. If I could have told you 10 years ago, you go to a hotel and they would have a place, okay, if you don't like pets or you're allergic, you can stay on this floor. Otherwise, this hotel, this whole place is open to pets. And, and it's been fascinating. And so you've seen Marriott and just big, big hotel groups figure that out. And, and, and that's been an exciting change. So that's, that's really changed the, the presence of pets has just in, in the public space, not inside the home, not in the backyard, but out there around, including in classrooms. And studies following that have told people, we need more of this. Um, and it's called social capital. Nothing has been proven to be more effective in creating trust in the community, reducing violence, making people feel secure, uh, attacking isolation than the presence of pets. That was studied in Australia, in San Diego, mm -hmm. in Portland, and Nashville. Mars funded that. And they didn't go out to prove that, they went out to see what were the factors, churches, sports, all the different things. Pets were the winner. Nothing had more of a positive impact on the community than the presence of pets. And that's, right. a, that's a big part of the book. No, I love it. I, um, I got the book on Kindle. I know it's on Audible, because I'm a big audiobook guy too. Yeah. Um, uh, you you said there's a uh, a new edition coming out, a paperback edition that people will be able to find all over the place. It sounds like yeah, it, it, Penguin Random House, the publisher, have uh, made the, the the wise and for me very uh, delightful decision to to go all in on the paperback. It'll be out in September, which reduces the cost quite a bit, and and there'll be new material in it. I'm I'm going to take advantage of of their decision to update some parts of the book. Um, doesn't mean you can't go out now and get, get an audio copy or, or, a, or a Kindle copy, uh, which you can on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any place. Yeah. But uh, so I'm, I'm happy they're going to do that. And, and, you know, 27 bucks for a hard uh, a hardcover is, is, is not a small uh, investment. So I, I know why paperbacks are popular and I'm glad that we get to have our version with it. So uh, I have had some schools are using it as a, as a, as a textbook in animal related classes. Uh, I've had. Uh, Six different vet schools have provided copies courtesy of, of sponsors to every vet student, Andy, and I'm talking to the schools about it. So that's been fun. Well, you know, and, and I say this in, in complete sincerity. I think that one of the things that helps a lot of vet professionals is seeing the difference they make in the world and coming to understand that the work that we do is really important. I think that Pet Nation lays down a really nice picture of that that's backed up by numbers. It's not just Andy Rourke saying, hey guys, what you do matters and people care about it and we're serving families in an important way. There's this beautiful picture of um, of the growth of pets in our in our lives and our culture that you're seeing and and it it does at some at a deep level it makes me feel good about being a veterinarian it makes me feel good about the future um and it makes me it makes me feel good about about the work that i do and so i can understand why why vet schools would uh would put that to students and and i would just say for for anybody out there listening who who wants to understand the cultural changes that pets are driving who's trying to to figure out what the future of vet medicine looks like i think it's i, I think it's great I, I i have really really enjoyed it i got mine uh, as a kindle book for like 13 bucks it's it's it was easy and it's it's great so anyway so thank you for that you bet andy and you know i, I last comment is is this i think 25 years ago veterinary practices and pets were kind of sideshows. They weren't center stage in the country. That's all changed now. Pets are they're permanent, they're center stage, and, what, and along with that, veterinary services. You read article after article, the New York Times, you name it. They have writers covering pets and pet health care because it matters to their readers. And, and that's a big transformation. And honestly, I don't think 
all veterinarians, maybe even a majority, have internalized that yet. They can't quite believe it. You know, they, they grew up in a culture where people would say, why are you going to vet school? You ought to go to med school. If you, if you took all those pre-vet pre classes, you can get into, and the answer is, well, I, I want to take care of animals. And there'd be a sense of, well, okay, I know, I guess you do like dogs, you know, as opposed to now where um, I don't think you have people trying to talk kids out of going to vet school. And I remember not that long ago, Paul Pion saying that was his mission, to, to talk people out of going to vet school because we had too many vets. And I, and I, I remember saying, Paul, you, you, nobody appointed you the moral guardian of, <laughs> of undergraduates and their childhood dreams of being a vet. So let's just let people pursue their dream and see where it takes them. And right now, it takes you to a pretty good place. So thanks for having me on the show. This, is, this has been a lot of fun. You, you made me work, though. I, I, I'm exhausted. I, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Do. Well, I knew <laughs> I knew I had some stuff I was going to put to you, but I, I really appreciate it. I always enjoy your insight. You give me a ton to think about. Like, I am mentally exhausted after this because <laughs> there's just my mind is trying to go nine different places at once. So I'm going to go meditate for a while <laughs> on this conversation. Do that and then enjoy a nice Pinot tonight while you're at it. But uh, anytime, <laughs> anytime you want to uh, bat things around, uh, give me a call. But good luck. I really appreciate all you do for the profession and pet owners and vets. So thank you, my friend. Take care. All right. Take care. See you. Well, guys, that's what I got for you today. I hope you uh, enjoyed it. I hope it made you think. I hope it made you think about the profession and kind of where we're going. Uh, I think there's a lot there to process. Uh, I hope you loved it. Um, let me know if there are topics that you would like to see. You can always shoot me an email at podcast at drandyrourke.com. That's podcast at drandyrourke.com. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>